is that he welcomes and loves people. We, ha we have an open door policy here at Grace Chapel. We love God and we love people. We, 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 we want to be like our Father in heaven and our Father in heaven loves and reaches out to the outsider. That's how each one of us who knows Jesus Christ as our Savior was originally adopted into this family in the first place. We were outsiders and now we're insiders. And we, we see that truth declared and illustrated throughout the pages of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and no more so than especially today in John chapter 10. Now, remember John 9 last week? It was about a man who was blind from birth who Jesus gave back his sight to. And then that poor soul was excommunicated, thrown out of the synagogue by the religious leaders for attributing that miracle of his new sight to this man, Jesus, who they were beginning to despise. Excommunication would immediately make you an outsider, rejected by your own community, maybe even by your own family. You would be desperate in a hurry. Desperate. This guy knew desperate. He had known desperate since birth, and he just experienced physical sight from that lifelong physical darkness, but only for a moment because now he's excommunicated. He's out in the cold again until Jesus went and found him, until Jesus offered him spiritual sight and eternal salvation, which he received. So make a mental note as we go through John 10 that it's directly linked back to that blindness, that whole blindness theme that we saw in John chapter 9. Chapter 10, verse 1. I'll read it for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. It was common for Jewish villages to build a communal sheep pen. It's where the various shepherds who worked out of that particular village would park their sheep overnight. Yes, they even had overnight parking back then. And then the shepherd could then get a good night's sleep knowing that there was a villager employed as the night watchman. And Jesus says in verse 3 to him, that would be to the shepherd of the sheep, the gatekeeper opens the door. And the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought <clears throat> out all his own he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And Jesus says, on the other hand, verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they'll actually flee from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. So when morning comes, the watchmen would open the gate, and the sheep would, shepherds would collect their flocks. And all these sheep from the different flocks would have been mixed together overnight in the village pen. So how does each shepherd know which of the sheep belong to him? Easy. He would call out each sheep by name. And the sheep would recognize the voice, his voice, and they would follow their shepherd. Verse 6. This figure of speech about the sheep, Jesus used with, with, used with them. Jesus is again, as he often did, describing the spiritual using familiar, common terms uh, from the physical. But it says they did not understand what he was saying to them. 
the sheep imagery was familiar to the people who worked the land. It was also familiar to the average Jew listening to Jesus because it's a symbol that's often used throughout the Old Testament. There are numerous occasions where the Israelites were called sheep and the leaders of the people were called shepherds. It's little wonder that the greatest king that they had had, King David, uh, the one who acted as a model for all the leaders who were to follow, started out his life as a shepherd. And he often saw life's journey through the eyes of a shepherd. And you see that often in the Psalms. And for those who are listening to Jesus, it was inevitable that they would also think of the famous words by one of their great prophets, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 34, written about 600 years before Jesus. And Ezekiel said in verse 1 of 34, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, I'd be the leaders of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherd, thus says the Lord. Here's what he said. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. Verse 22, I will rescue my flock, they shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now remember, David's been dead about 400 years when Ezekiel says this, so he's referring to another shepherd, another king. And he shall feed them, and he shall feed them, and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, I have spoken." So Jesus, the Messiah from the line of David, will gather his own flock of sheep who are known because they follow his call. But it doesn't appear that the people grasp what he is saying. And we're not surprised because we're told that some of them were Pharisees. The very group who Jesus has been singling out with criticism. He's been calling them thieves and robbers here. So Jesus used some other sheep imagery to get more specific about this illustration in verse 7 so Jesus again said to them truly truly I say to you I am the door of this sheep he changes the imagery up all who came before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep did not listen to them I am the door if anyone enters by me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture the thief now he comes to kill the steal to kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly so, so through this beautiful and simple illustration, Jesus is exposing the religious leaders who had already rejected him, who were at that moment, as they were even listening to him, plotting his death, and they had just recently expelled the former blind man from the community. They had illegitimately taken control of the sheep. So Jesus goes on to identify himself as God's promised shepherd king, the one Ezekiel had said is coming. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus has skillfully moved from, from talking about the communal village, that, that, that sheep pen, to the individual shelters that were out in the fields that each shepherd would construct specifically for his own flock. It was where the sheep would be sheltered during that intense afternoon heat. 
Shepherds were known to often lie across the entrance to these pens and act as human shields. And Jesus explains them and he explains to us that he alone is able to provide and protect his flock. He has masterfully changed the imagery here. Did you catch it? From that of the shepherd who leads the flock out of the pen to that of the gate of the pen itself. Verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. There are two words in Greek that Jesus could have used to mean good. Jesus goes for the far stronger when he talks about the good shepherd. He means not just someone who is good, but someone who is noble, someone who is excellent. A complete contrast to the Jewish leaders, uh, the hired hands, who are only in it for the money and for the power, and therefore willing to, to plot, to cheat, to do anything they can to conspire, even to commit murder, to keep their control. Verse 13, he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd I, and, I, and I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. For the hired hand, it's only a job. They're not, they're not his sheep. Whereas for Jesus, those sheep belong to him. But not only that, Jesus not only owns the sheep, Jesus knows the sheep. He knows each of us intimately, thoroughly. He knows our thoughts. He knows our imaginations. He knows the desires of our heart. He knows what you're, you and I are thinking right now. Verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. And thank God for this, because he's talking about the Gentiles, you and me. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. This is a voluntary, submissive to the Father thing. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I received from my Father. The religious leaders of the Jewish community exercised enormous control over the people. Uh, they, they ensured that the people conformed to all the expected rules and regulations, most of them of which they had made up themselves. And in return, they promised security, they, were, they promised identity. And, and in this particular time, uh, it was very brutal Roman occupation. The trouble was many of them were in it for the money and the power. Guys like Nicodemus, who we've been introduced to already, were very far and few between. And when this startling new rabbi named Jesus from Nazareth, when he emerges out of the backwaters of Galilee, performing miracles and calling the people to repent, calling the people to prepare for God's kingdom come, they felt really threatened. Especially when using the sheep imagery, Jesus has so obviously criticized their own leadership. So, so how much does the Good Shepherd love us? The bottom line is Jesus was willing to go to the cross to suffer in our place. And just in case someone might say, well, you know, if he's God, um, that was kind of easy, wasn't it? It's God's going to die. He knows he's going to come back again, alive again. After all, he's the creator of the universe. Why don't you look at the word that Jesus used to describe him laying down his life? The word for life 
that he lays down for us. He didn't use the typical Greek word in verse 11, uh, bios, which he could have used. It refers to the, the physical side of this life, which of course he did lay down. He didn't use the Greek word zoe, which refers to one's life, entire life history. Instead, he uses the Greek word suke, which means soul. The totality of his being, the essence of his very life. Jesus loves his sheep so much that he gave himself voluntarily, completely, utterly, and totally for them. Verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why should we listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The Jewish leaders felt threatened. The religious zealots who wanted to overthrow Rome felt undermined. While the poor, the helpless, the failures rejoiced in Jesus' message of grace. Things were coming to a head. The battle lines were being clearly drawn. Verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. The Feast of Dedication it celebrated, had been celebrated for uh, about 195 years. And their national hero was uh, Judas Maccabeus. In uh, 195 years before this, he had recaptured the temple from occupying forces. And now they yearly celebrated this festival. We know this festival by its more popular name. It's called Hanukkah. It takes place over eight, de eight days um, in December. And we read it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? A different time, but always the same question. And why is it that people don't believe? Well, number one, it's because of their false assumptions. Verse 24, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Really? Plainly? What could have been more plain? But to be fair to these blind guides, Jesus had never explicitly said to them, I am the Messiah. Um, he had pointed to it in more ways than they deserved than anyone really needed, but he had refrained from using that exact expression. He had pointed to it in more ways than anyone really needed. He had used the I am God expression, I am in Hebrew. And that's probably what messed them up. They understood Messiah to mean someone who would come and exercise military and political power. Um, it's like most of our world wants to happen in Ukraine right now. Make this right by your might, whatever it takes. But it's not what true Messiahship was about. Laying down his life is what Jesus had emphasized. So little wonder that at this feast, which commemorated and celebrated a military victory over a ruthless, barbaric foreign overlord, Jesus refused to fit into their wrong expectations and categories. And, and, and he refused to accommodate himself to their false assumptions about the way things should be through their eyes. Why do people not believe? Well, number two, because of poor listening. Verse 25, I did tell you, but you do not believe. There's a big difference between not being able to understand, maybe because of false assumptions, 
and not being willing to listen. Every parent knows what that looks like. And Jesus is crystal clear in, in what he's pointing to. But there's this complete lack of willingness to hear the things that he was saying. They prided themselves on who they were and where they came from. Number three, why do people not believe? Because of bad sight. Verse 25. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. Not only could the Jews not hear or understand what Jesus was saying with his words, they couldn't see the evidence that was plainly before their eyes. Jesus had confirmed his claims over and over, miracle after miracle, but still they couldn't see. Why? Because of the wrong owner. Verse 26, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Do you remember Jesus has already told them that their father is not God in heaven. It's the devil. This is startling, isn't it? To many, this is very, very offensive. Jesus was telling his listeners that he, the good, the true shepherd, had not called them. You're not mine. You do not belong to my flock. So it's no surprise that they should react with unbelief and reject that. And the reality is this, you can't come unless God calls. Paul made this so clear and plain in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28, where he said that God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, not because of anything you've done, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then Paul goes on in the next chapter, chapter two, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians, and says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And this is why many today ask, what must I do to be saved? The emphasis on doing. Inherent in all of us is this need to repay, to make things right. What do, what do I have to do to get your forgiveness? We inherently know that we owe. It's why many do not believe and instead work with all of their might to make it right. So if this is the nature of unbelief as defined by Jesus Christ himself, how did any of us ever come to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior? Good morning, Grace Chapel. Well, good morning again. We're going to pick up where Pete left off. Jesus uh, has been speaking directly to the Jewish audience at the temple. He's been telling them why they don't believe and why others don't believe, but now he's going to instead give us reasons that people do believe. And in doing so, he's going to give us what evidence of true belief looks like. When the audience puts those two things together, they should have enough information to evaluate where they stand in regards to belief. Therefore, so should we. 
Jesus is going to, he's going to give us four reasons that people believe in verses 27 and 28. It says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus begins by giving us an identifier of a true believer. He says, my sheep hear my voice. People believe because of attentive hearing. This is using the same sheep analogy, the same sheep imagery that's running throughout the rest of this chapter. I want you to to think back to that communal sheep pen that Pete described for us earlier, where all the shepherds would come and put their sheep together, and you know, then they would, when it's time to go, come back and call their sheep. But only their sheep would come. Likewise, a Christ follower is drawn to the words of Jesus, and they desire to hear from him and to know him. I know that uh, I see this evidenced in my own life. I can notice a difference in myself when I am most consistent in being God's word versus uh, where there's been times where I'm least, less consistent. I don't know if that's something that you guys can uh, empathize with as well. We, we find it easy to be busy and find it easy to get away from it. But when I and when we are consistently being fed by the word of God, it changes how we walk in our day-to-day life. Are you drawn to the word of God? A believer finds rest in the word of God because the word of God gives life. Not only that, but the word helps shape you into who God has called you to be, which we see written in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God calls his people and they follow his voice, and God's people are shaped by the word of God. The second reason that people believe in Jesus is because he is the true shepherd and he knows his sheep. He says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. For many of us here, that's a very familiar idea, and it's very easy to identify with that God knows his sheep. He knows the number of hairs in your head. He's known you even before you were in your mother's womb. There is no other shepherd like Jesus. Pete made that clear when uh, speaking out of Ezekiel earlier. And certainly, it's, there's no shepherd like Jesus among the Pharisees. Jesus knows you. He knows all of your sin, all of your, your successes, all the failures, and this is why many come to follow God. That even though he knows your sin, he knows all of your pride, all of the deep, dark secrets that you don't want to tell anybody else, he knows all of those things. And yet he loves you immensely. The love of God is full of grace and mercy. First John chapter 4, verse 19 affirms that people follow because of the love of God. It says this, we love because he first loved us. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8 carries the same sentiment here. It says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The third reason that people follow Jesus. It's because they have a clear vision of what is most important in life. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. A Christ follower is not just a hearer of the word, but they are a doer of the word, which Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Knowing God should transform the heart and the life of a believer, giving life a new agenda, which is to seek God's will in every action. And when we repent, when we turn from our sin and we begin to live as sons and daughters of God, rather than slaves to sin, this transformation becomes evident. Christ's follower lives a life founded on seeking the will of God. For someone like this, God's will is no longer an obstacle, but a privilege. Anyone who's worked to overcome a sin will tell you that there is great freedom that comes with that. It's relieving to be living according to God's standard and to God's will, and it's a privilege to follow God and his will. The last reason that people follow Jesus is because of a genuine experience of Christ. Verse 28 says this, I give them eternal life. When we entrust our life to Christ, we receive a gift of eternal, fulfilling life with him, knowing Christ is not just an academic knowledge, it's not just an academic pursuit, but it's a life lived in relationship with a loving father. It's through following Christ that uh, life can be lived to its fullest extent, and it's through knowing Christ that we can know true relationship and true fulfillment. It's through Christ that we have strength to endure, and we find hope and joy in the promise of eternity with him. So Jesus has explained why people do and why people do not follow him, but now he's going to affirm those that do believe, and he's going to assure them of his place in their care, or their place in his care. Verse 27 says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Verses 14 and 15 demonstrated earlier that uh, Jesus' knowledge of his flock, he is not only the good shepherd, but he is also the shepherd who will lay down his life for his flock. Here in verse 27 or 28 to 30, Jesus tells of the intent and the ability to sustain and retain his flock. This is a claim about past, present, and future sustaining and care. Jesus is active in sustaining his people. In saying this, Jesus also claims to be the Son of God, who is one with the Father. Because Jesus can and he will sustain and retain his flock, we arrive at this encouraging truth. All who truly belong to Jesus Christ can never be lost and can never be taken from him. Three reasons are given within this passage. Jesus starts with this. He says, I give them eternal life. That's verse 28. The word he uses for eternal, it appears uh, 65 times in the New Testament, and it's used to describe the eternal God, the eternal aspect of God. There is no stronger word to describe eternity. Jesus gives a strong word. We noted this giving of life back in verse 10. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The same theme is implied here in verse 28 in regards to eternal life. Further, in examining the the original language, we see that there is a both present and continuous sense of this giving of life. So a more literal reading would say this, I keep on giving to them eternal life. Christ's involvement with his people is continuous and it is sustaining. Every second of every minute, Christ is at work giving real, fulfilling, eternal life. John 15, 5 affirms this. It says this, 
I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In the same way that a shepherd watches over his flocks, leading them to green pastures, defending them from danger, and caring for them carefully, Jesus watches over and cares for those who follow him. Jesus follows this with a very strong promise, and they shall never perish. And if you're like me and you read this, and then you read it again, and then a third time, you might have thought, well, isn't that the same thing? He said he's going to have eternal life, and they will never perish. This seems redundant, but it's not. Jesus is using this to reassure and to add emphasis to the claim of that giving of the eternal life. It's a more, um, if you were to take a more literal translation of this, you could say this is, they will indeed not ever perish. That's showing the continued emphasis. It's one step further than the first statement. And even though we experience difficulties in, in this life, even death, the promise of God's sustaining eternal life cannot be broken, and nothing can keep a follower of Christ from eternal life with him. The third promise, it gets personal, and it stands on the fact that God is a strong Savior. He says this, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And again, Jesus rephrases it, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Maybe you notice the subtle difference there. He intended that to be, uh, to be noticed, so he clarifies. He says, I and the Father are one. And uh, considering that the audience goes to stone him immediately, I think they get his point. He, they even say so. Verse 33 says this, You, a mere man, claim to be God. They understand the gravity of his claim, and so he responds in verse 36, and he says, I am the Son of God. He's leaving uh, no room for doubt, and if Jesus was truly the Son of God, it would be foolish to stone him, and I would maybe even say sinful to stone him. Hopefully, some of them will consider his argument, but what we read instead is that they go and they seek to arrest him. While no one can snatch a believer out of God's hands, this life is not without difficulties. Satan attacks the people of God frequently, and he attempts to draw them away from God. Jesus knows this. Back in verse 12, he said uh, that wolves would attack his flock. And the word he uses for attack there is the same word that's used for snatch in this last section here. And what Jesus is claiming at the end of the chapter is that he's going to protect his flock from Satan's attacks. None of the attacks, however brutal they may be, are going to be able to separate you or I from the sustaining eternal love and care and eternal promise of our God because of the power of our strong God. Romans 8, 38 and 39 echoes this, says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. After this encounter, Jesus leaves the temple Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. And many believed in him here. Jesus has made clear that he is the Son of God. He has made it clear why people do or don't believe, which begs the question, 
Where do you stand? Do you believe? Are you part of the flock? If this isn't a decision that you've come to, I would certainly be glad to sit down and talk with this over with you. I know any of the elders or I'm sure anybody even in this room would be happy to talk with you over it because it's a very, very important and urgent decision. For those of us that do, know, do believe and we live in this loving relationship with uh, God, we're going to take this time, we're going to lift up the name of Jesus in praise. I'm going to invite you guys to go ahead and stand with me. Our God is the one who knows his people, he loves his people, and he sustains his people through a strong word and a strong promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to open up your word together as a gathered church body. God, we thank you for the words of your Son, the record we have of them. God, we thank you for your active work in our lives, God, that it's not, uh, you know, we have to just wait until we see you to, to be in continued relationship with you, God. We're thankful for the access that we have uh, to you and for your continued work in our lives. We thank you first and foremost for the work of your Son, Jesus, and uh, the eternal life we receive through him. God, I pray that as we continue in worship this morning, that, uh, that that gift that we've received, the goodness that we see in you through this, God, that would be our cause to respond to you in praise this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen.